Hello and welcome to the Verblio Show. This is the podcast for digital agencies and digital marketers brought to you by Verblio, the friendliest content creation platform in the business. I'm your host, Steve Pakras, and I'm Verblio's CEO. Today, I talk with Mark Organ, the founder and CEO of category creating companies Eloqua and Influitive. I'm particularly excited to talk to Mark because he has led marketing companies through two of the worst recessions in recent history in 2001 and 2008. He's also incredibly thoughtful and student of marketing and management and has thought deeply on how to guide companies like my own uh, and how to manage these, uh, these turbulent waters. Uh, he's taught me a lot about removing risk um, from the CEOs that I'm selling to, about the value of thought leadership and how to drive a company, and also about the importance of great management for great marketing. We talked on April 1st, 2020. Hello, everybody. I am excited to be talking to Mark Organ, and I will let him uh, introduce himself. Thanks, Steve. Um, so yeah, I'm Mark Organ. I'm a serial category creating entrepreneur, founder. Um, so uh, I've been an entrepreneur since um, apparently I was a young boy when I was selling medicine out of my parents' medicine cabinet. Um, but uh, got into software as a better business after. And as uh, a couple of businesses that I've been known for, one is Eloqua, which is uh, one of the original marketing automation software companies and um, the category definer there in terms of cloud-based uh, demand gen automation and marketing automation. Uh, and then Influitive, which uh, is the uh, category definer in the advocate marketing and community space. So I've been doing SaaS now for uh, 20 years, and right now I am a CEO coach, and I work with some really fabulous uh, SaaS CEOs uh, around the world and help them to define and dominate their uh, their categories. Thanks so much, Mark. So I think there are a few people that are uh, that I would like to talk to more than you about this area. Not only do you lead SaaS companies, and I've led them for through three major crises. Uh, you've also led marketing-focused SaaS companies for how to support marketers through these times. So uh, one of the favorite Mark Twain quotes that I keep getting reminded of is, history does not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Yeah. Uh, and so you've steered some companies through three of these. What expected changes do you, um, do you think are going to occur for marketing budgets and for marketers in the near future, both on the kind of both sides of the range would be most appreciated? Yeah, that's no, a great question. And, and I probably learn more by serving marketers than, than by doing marketing. Um, back when I was running Eloqua and um, uh, September 11th hit, uh, I saw marketing budgets go literally to zero for a couple of years. Um, mm. And we actually survived at Eloqua because we sold into a sales budget as opposed to marketing with the pitch being the best way to help your sales team is to get them qualified leads. And we actually produce data that, that prove that. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of insight in that. Um, first of all, mar budgets are fungible. Um, and you know, the goal of the CEO who owns all the budget is to generate uh, performance and success. Um, and oftentimes, they have reduced marketing budget because they don't know how much it's producing. Now, I think that might have changed a little bit since 2001, 2002. I think there's a lot more tracking. Um, but I think there's still a lot of insight in that, in that these sales budgets were often untouched, like humongous budgets for sales training, for example, hmm. um, and almost no budget for 
supplying leads for sales reps. So one key lesson to learn is to generate highly measurable ROI with sales. So to track, like the MQL is just dead. Like just stop tracking it. I think it's, um, it, it's, it's really a, a metric that gets in the way of success often hmm. um, and track sales qualified opportunities. So get really deep and integrated with the sales org to understand the leads we're generating that are actually converting, that are converting quickly, you know, which ones are going faster um, and which ones are converting at a higher rate. So that'd be the first big thing. Um, and, and really think about an integrated funnel. The best marketers, they, they really don't stop even at the level of sales. I mean, they generate highly qualified leads, they track through to um, how well they convert into sales and then even post sales. Are these good mm -hmm. customers that we're with? Are they launching quickly? Are they getting value quickly? Um, those are the types of customers we want a lot more of. When you're in a crisis, it's all about cash. And so if you've got leads that are not converting into customers quickly, if you've got customers that are not generating success quickly, um, you're losing cash. Um, so when I was running Eloqua, which was a bootstrapped company for a long time before we raised any money, Mm -hmm. I was obsessed with turning cash over as quickly as possible. Um, and the way to do that is to think holistically about the funnel. Um, because there is only one bottleneck by definition in any process. Um, and if marketing is just working on its own little thing of generating, you know, generating leads or generating case studies or whatnot. Um, but that's actually not addressing the system bottleneck of your process of going from awareness to highly advocating customers, the awareness to advocate chain, um, then you're, you're really missing the boat as a marketer. And the CEO is gonna recognize that. Um, so a great way to make yourself indispensable as uh, a marketer to the CEO is to do more of the CEO's job. The CEO is not thinking only about marketing. The CEO is thinking about the whole funnel. They're thinking about optimizing everything, including costs, um, to generate a maximum return. So if you as a marketer are thinking about the next job, right, where is the system bottleneck? How do I marshal my resources to go in you know, and, and fix that um, and track all those results? Then you know, the CEO and board are going to really take notice and say, hey, this is somebody who's driving the, the train here. Um, who's not just focused on her own department, but they're, they're driving the whole business. And then what you'll find is you're gonna get more budget. Um, you're gonna get an opportunity to, to do more because you're not seen as an island. Um, and finally, it probably goes without saying, but you know, costs and cash are just critical in this time. So I think the first thing a marketer's gotta do is just get ahead of that, be a good citizen and figure out a way to whack a whole bunch of costs sooner rather than later. Um, because it's really from a, it's only from a space of good defense, you can actually go and do offense. So let's first make sure that, you know, any, uh, any, any unnecessary costs, meaning, I mean, any cost that is not generating a near-term re return. And when I'm near-term, I mean, when I was in crisis like this before, near-term for me means six months or less. If we're not generating a cash flow return in six months, we can't get a three X or more return in a year, then this is not an investment that we should be doing. Um, 
And again, the CEO and CFO are going to really appreciate that, that they don't have to come to you as a marketer to say, hey, what can you do to wax and cost? But you go to them and say, oh, by the way, I've already limited my investments that aren't going to pay off right away. I'm focusing all my attention on the near term and things that are generating cash. They're going to really appreciate that. That's super helpful. Um, I'm particularly interested in kind of in the 2001 recession uh, that sales budget stayed the same and marketing went uh, was the one that went to zero. Did, what happened differently in the Great Recession? Was that similar? Was um, it was similar, but not as pronounced. So um, I think marketing has gotten a lot better at tracking its results. Uh, there's both through technology and through processes. Um, and, and also the sales function has become more expensive. So sales reps uh, by 2008 in the software business have become, you know, you start to see in key markets in the United States, really minimum 80K base uh, and often over 100K base for a sales rep that doesn't get productive until month, whatever it is, six or eight, um, you know, versus marketing where there are some marketing investments that are actually pretty, pretty solid. Um, and I would say content marketing is one of those that, uh, you know, I saw in the great recession, a global financial crisis, companies increased their investment in content. I believe that is happening again. Um, and I think content marketing is just one of those essential investments that pretty much always pay off. Um, and uh, so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of it, but yet still, you know, sales uh, companies are really loath to let go of their experience and productive sales reps for, for good reason. You know, people who reps have been around for a while, there, you know, that's a, that's a good use of, uh, of capital. Um, but what happened in the Great Recession was that newer sales reps that had six months or less of tenure, they're gone. Hmm. Uh, and so less sales reps, more leads per rep, more management capacity per rep um, was, uh, you know, was, was on the agenda. But that said, you know, marketing budget still got hacked big time. But instead of going to zero, they might have been hacked out like 75% or 60%. And now for an interlude from our quirky sponsor, Verblio. Hi there, this is Kaylee. I'm Verblio's Senior Content and Marketing Manager. I'm here today to read you five real topics that we've written for five real clients. Number one, four at-home organizational projects to tackle in 15 minutes or less. Number two, what should industrial cleaning look like in the wake of COVID-19? Number three, does Cardi B know how to drive? Number four, how brushless motor technology has revolutionized insulin therapy. And number five, the hard truth about stupidity. Wow. And now back to you, Steve. Got it. And, but content and more digital marketing was different than the, the full 60%. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you noticed that, but I saw, um, for sure at, at Eloqua, we, uh, actually increased our investment in content marketing. Um, and we introduced new forms of uh, new forms of content. I mean, the big you know the big insight that we had, and we were pretty early in content marketing at, at Eloqua. Um, I mean, way way before I think HubSpot really popularized it, was that we recognized the annuity nature of it, right? And that you know we we uh, we had eBooks and or we called them white papers back then uh, that were really old that were continuing to generate awesome leads. And they were like four years old, um, but yet they, you know, so 
it's like a gift that keeps on giving or an annuity or a dividend generating stock. I mean, pick your metaphor here. Um, but that's what I love about content marketing. Um, and then I also love that, you know, once you get to uh, a tipping point, and I don't know what that is, it depends on the industry, you know, but, but once we got to, you know, 12 eBooks and you know, 150 blog posts and a bunch of videos, uh, we were the de facto leader in the space. Like it was, um, you know, there were so many customers that went with us because they saw us as the, um, as the thought leader, you know, people throw that thought leadership word around. I'm not sure they know what it means, but, but I think what it means is you're the leader in thinking you've got the best thinking. Um, and customers, especially the early adopter types, uh, they're buying roadmap and they're buying insight as much as they're buying what you have today. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan. It's one of those rare investments that, pay off in a short term, but then also have this long tail effect um, as well. That's really interesting. I mean, we, we clearly think about content all the time. What I hadn't thought about before is using content as your competitive moat at an early stage. Was this like a big conscious investment that you did during, during the crisis of 2001, where you're like, this is what's available. Let's build out this competitive advantage. Yeah, it started. I mean, our investment in content marketing really did start early. And part of it was that I mean, Eloqua, we are a marketing automation tool. And so we needed to produce content to put in our emails, right? So it started with me writing a newsletter and, and you know, I, I'm a, I, I read a lot. I'm an old ex-academic, right? So I love to put these, you know, these um, uh, newsletters together that had a lot of rich content in it because um, that's just my style. Um, and... Um, yeah, they saw it was a it was a great it was a great investment, and uh, again, love this annuity nature of it and this sort of tipping point sort of concept. So, um, when we went into hard times, we're like, what is what is the most efficient way to generate um, more leads and and increase our conversion rate uh, with our core customers? And it was it was producing content because it's stuff that not only marketing use it, um, but you know, sales reps are armed with all these great materials with which to add value to customers, right? So the thing is, when you're in a crisis like this, nobody wants to hear from a sales rep. It's so icky. Mm. Like, how could you be selling me shit at a time like this? I mean, I, I know that they have a job to do. Uh, but, you know, I would say that 10% of the things I've got from sales reps were really value added. You know, hey, Mark, have you considered XYZ with your business? Um, I'd love to help you with that. You know, um, I've got some benchmarking data for you. I've got some other things, you know, so um, you, you, you need to arm your sales reps with things that um, are value added and make them welcome for the customer who is going crazy, trying to cut cost, cut risk from their business. And I mean, they're looking for things to cut. They're not looking for things to buy. Right. Um, which is another big insight, I think, in a crisis, which is um, even more, like amplified probably 5x more than normal, is the need for a solution to remove risk from the customer. I think risk is a really underappreciated aspect of sales. Hmm. Um, you look at the vast majority of sales pitches, which include marketing, stuff for marketing, 
and he'd present this beautiful picture of this new world using verblio tech or influitive tech or whatnot. And the problem is, is the customer, especially in a crisis, is not thinking about a beautiful world. Um, they are so heads down and focused on today. Um, and they're so much surrounded by, by risk that they want to offload. Um, that as much as it seems like that's a nice thing, it's, it's going to go in one ear out the other. Um, so I think it's really important to show prospects uh, in your marketing how you can make their job a sure thing, how you mm -hmm. can make it a safe bet. Um, how can you show that your product is going to cut out enough cost, take out enough risk that it pays for itself in like a couple of months? And then everything after that is gravy. Now that is a pitch that is going to get a lot of attention. I mean, in, in three crises that I've been a part of, in every time there was a CFO-like person mm -hmm. who got involved to literally have to okay every purchase of any technology or service. Um, that you don't see that in good times, but in tough times, the CFO is just going to get medieval and as they should. So if your pitch is not addressing her concerns, then you can get your, you know, you can get your target really excited and that pitch is not going to go anywhere. Um, so that was a, that was an important realization. It's true. Even in good times though, by the way, I mean, even in good times, I think people don't uh, sellers and marketers don't appreciate how important risk actually is to the buyer and how important it is, is to show the buyer that, you have the least risky approach for solving his or her problem. All right. Final question to end on a lighter note is any ways that you and your family are staying entertained while locking in, locked in isolation? Yeah. I mean, we've got, you know, honestly, this thing has been a blessing in so many ways. I mean, I know that sounds nuts and, and for sure, like the, you know, the, the kids are sometimes struggling with, uh, I mean, there's a full lockdown here in Toronto where I am. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're even fining people for like going outside and stuff. Mm. Kind of nuts. Um, but I got to tell you, like we've gotten so close together as a family, which has been really amazing. Um, and there's a couple of things that we're doing together. One of them is we're, you know, we're, uh, we're doing um, shared activities every day, especially cooking and baking and sort of things. So my kids are coming up with recipes for us to make together. Uh, we, we've discovered the lost art of cooking, um, as, as many people have in this environment, um, and, and board games. Uh, I spent about a thousand bucks on board games. My personal favorite uh, <laughs> yeah. this time is, I think it's one of the best games I've ever played. It's called Pandemic Legacy. <laughs> um, it's Perfect. especially good for playing at a time of a pandemic. And it's a very rare game in that, um, uh, as opposed to competing against each other, you and your family work together to defeat the viruses and save the world. Um, so it's a very inspiring game. It is very well done. And um, when you play a game, there's actually a memory that happens into the next game. So every game that you play, there's, there's a legacy from the previous game that you've played. Mm -hmm. It's a remarkable game. So we're playing all kinds of board games, but this one is particularly good. And I, I highly recommend it. If you've got kids between like eight and 15, it's really great. Perfect. Well, uh, that sounds much more productive than our nightly family game of Settlers of Catan, where we all end the game very upset with each other and then needing to see each other again in the morning.
<laughs> okay, yeah, that is also a great game, but, but yeah, don't just don't play Monopoly. That is the worst design game in the world. Family killer. Yeah, family cool. killer. Mark, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and thanks for sharing all your insights with our audience. Thank you, Steve. That's it for this episode of the Verblio Show. Thanks for tuning in. This is Steve Pockross in Denver, Colorado, signing off.